chance that no one will believe this, but there is a, quite a theme that the Holy Spirit is spinning today. It's the message I, w- I wrote for last week, and we had faith stories instead, which was wonderful. But today I want to talk about Jesus, who offers himself to us as a heartfelt, compassionate, and persistent friend. A heartfelt, compassionate, and persistent friend to us. Jesus was often disdainfully called a friend of tax collectors and sinners by his proud religious opponents. Um, in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, the, the proud religious opponents of Christ saw him eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners, a group that they did not feel that they were a part of. As Greg said, there's only one type of person, but these people did not believe they were a part of that group. And they saw how comfortable Jesus was with these people and how he didn't care what anyone thought about it. And the reason that he didn't care about what anyone thought about it was not because Jesus was a rebel, it was because he had submitted perfectly to the Father. His love is, rises above every, um, every, any, any human interference. So he just didn't care what anyone thought. But we ask ourselves, you know, why would, they, why would his opponents call him the sinner's friend? all he was doing was sharing a meal with them. In Jesus' day, to eat with someone or a group of people was considered acceptance, love, and approval of these people as being image bearers of his. Not approval of all behavior, but approval of them as people that deserve to be loved and are made in God's image. Not only was Jesus eating with them and accepting them, he was telling them these gripping parables about God's love for them, which he intended to cause their imaginations to stir with this idea. Well, if, he's, if what he's saying is true, maybe God can use me after all. That was what, what stirred the imaginations of these people. Jesus was so loving, so accepting of people as they were when they first came to him. Some people, such as the shady tax collector, Zacchaeus, responded to Jesus in his kindness towards him, saying, maybe it's time to leave my life of sin and even my career to pay back all the people I cheated and take Jesus on as my friend. He left everything to follow Jesus. To the sinners and the sick, Jesus revealed himself as a compassionate friend who was so compelling that people would leave entire lifetimes, entire lifestyles, entire professions, families, repent of their sins, the things they had relied on to keep going, and consider themselves to be reconciled to God through the friendship of this man, Jesus. Those of us who know Christ, Revelation 3.20 is actually a message intended for those who already are in the faith and have a relationship with Jesus already. And Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Even now, ascending to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He knocks. He's still a sinner's friend. And Jesus is still coming close and drawing us to his friendship table. The exalted Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friendship with Jesus. What is the, what is the essence of true friendship? What do the Proverbs say in Scripture? Here's just a sample. 
Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Jesus is a friend of you and me. He loves at all times, and born for a time of adversity in our lives. Proverbs 18, 24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus Christ. Brother Jesus. He, call, he called himself our brother, our older brother. Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Friends tell the truth to one another. They do it in love not to hurt their friend, but to help their friend. Because they want to see their friend live a life to the full. Whereas an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Again, a friendship passage. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Jesus Christ is sharpening his disciples. You know, to this day, by the Holy Spirit, by the community of his body, the church, which we have all around us here. I'd like to share with you my journey of into friendship with Jesus. As far as I can see, as now uh, approaching 40 years old, um, every adult that I get to know seems to have a central wound in their life that tells a story about them that you would never guess if you judged them too harshly or too quickly. John Eldridge says, every person carries a wound. I've never met a person without one. No matter how good your life may have seemed to you, you live in a broken world full of broken people. Each of us carries a wound. Have you ever noticed how it seems like some people just keep taking hits in the same place over and over again in their lives? Just arrows in the same spot over and over and over again. And we ask, you know, why does this person keep getting hit with this issue? with this message. Why has someone who was abandoned by their father as a child then become abandoned by a close friend later in life, or abandoned by a spouse, or even abandoned by one of their own children later in life? That's a devastating wound. And the message of the wound is clear. You will be abandoned in the end. You will be left alone in the end. That's the wound. Our walls go up, and these wounds of the enemy then become self-fulfilling prophecies as we come to believe their message. Soon, the enemy doesn't have to accuse us anymore or shoot his arrows. Now, we ex now we've accepted the message of the arrows, and the enemy's job is over. Walls go up. You start acting in, out in ways to keep yourself from attaching to other people. The message gets reinforced and is very clear. Don't trust. Don't lean on anybody. You will be left in the dust. Protect yourself from the pain. The walls go up. The arrows of the enemy zing by our heads day after day, many times hitting their mark. Maybe the wound is you'll never be good enough. A child, for some reason, that not even their parents understand, gets the idea in their little child head that they are just not good at anything. Not really. And as an adult, the same wound seems to be acted out time and time again. Not only did you freeze at your piano recital when you were 12, you are also regularly passed over for desired promotions in your workplace and passed over as a friend or even as a romantic partner. Again, the enemy shoots his arrows at God's people 
people in general from a young age. And once you start putting up your walls around these wounds, the enemy's work is done. It becomes a self-fulfilling, self-sustaining system. You've accepted the message of the arrows, that you will never be good enough. You set out with your unconscious behaviors, putting up your walls and decisions to live out this, this life. Jacob, in the Old Testament, one of the patriarchs, he, uh, he was a deceiver. That was his big sin. He, from the time he was born, he was wrestling with his brother Esau and grasping at Esau's heel. He was a heel grabber. He was a deceiver. And he functioned out of this identity in his life. Jacob lied to his brother to steal his brother's birthright. He then lied to his father, who in his old age couldn't tell who he was blessing, and stole the blessing from his father. He then, later in life, he was coming into contact with his brother Esau, who he assumed was fuming angry at him still, because he was angry initially. And he tried to control that situation by sending out herds of cattle and beautiful gifts to his brother so his brother's anger would be averted. But the thing, the thing is that Esau had already forgiven his brother. He didn't see those things as being uh, needful. But the, 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 the message of Jacob's life seems to be you need to grab and grasp at whatever you can by whatever means that you can because you are the bottom line. No one's looking out for you. So you do what you need to do. Deceive, steal, to get what you need in life. Which is not really a posture of trust in God, certainly. Again, he acts out this wound when he sends all those gifts to his brother. You know, if, if you do not do something to absorb your brother's anger, he is going to kill you. You know, it's all him trying to control this stuff. He has this wound that gets hit time and time again, and he deceives and sins to build up those walls and keep on walking in this identity. And if you read the story, you know, God works with Jacob. And if you feel like God can't work with you, he can, because he worked with Jacob. He even wrestled with Jacob physically and allowed Jacob to tire himself out through an all-night fight. And then he touched the socket of his hip and dislocated his hip. And then Jacob submitted and said, Lord, bless me. Finally, he, he, re he released that controlling nature and let God give him a blessing, a legitimate blessing. Story of Jacob. These wounds, these arrows from the enemy, are why 2 Corinthians 10.5 advises us. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is what we call spiritual warfare. The arrows of the enemy are intentional. Identity wounds are inflicted surgically by our enemy in order to shatter and stifle the unique gifts and calling and image of God that we bear as his children. Our first defense, according to 2 Corinthians, is to take these lies captive before they pierce into our skin, to demolish those arguments quickly for the pretensions that self set themselves up against the truth or knowledge of God. For instance, if your central message has been, you will never really make anything of yourself, 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen person. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You take captive the lie, and you, take, you speak to that lie with scripture. You hold on to that with both hands. You have to hold on to that with both hands. Because everything is against you uh, taking hold of that. It's what the enemy uh, would, would not want to happen. 
this is the essence of much of our spiritual warfare, defeating lies with specific truths from God's word in real time, holding on to the truth, just like Jesus did when he was lied to by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights in his fast. You know, the key is to know what God's word says and to be aware, not be unaware of the schemes of the enemy who is trying to, um, who's trying to sabotage whatever it is that God wants to do in your life. As Christians, we know that these arrows are not random. There's a battle for the souls of men and women happening every day around us. And even our beloved children are taking hits, and the enemy does not play fair. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. This passage then goes on to list all the pieces of spiritual armor that we should consider putting on. So why, why is the enemy so intent on destroying God's children? The enemy hates the purpose and beauty that God has put into each of us as God's image bearers. The enemy has also been wounded and even defeated at the cross of Christ when Jesus rose from the dead, which makes the enemy even more desperate and dangerous as he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy from God's image bearers, his children. Reasoning as he did with Adam and Eve that if he cannot have victory over God, then he'll try to take some of God's children down with him into bitter defeat. The sad part is, as most of us know, sometimes the enemy succeeds. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to be part of a close-knit church family so that other people can help you to reject the lies and take on the truth. The wound we receive is often central to the most exciting part of who God has made a person to be. God's enemy hates the image of God in each of us, so he tries to destroy this very thing, or at least to dim the light so much that the faint flicker. The arrows of the enemy are pointed at us, at each of us. The enemy does not want, does not want us to live out our God-given purpose as individuals or as churches who are God's body on earth. People find it a little unconventional when I share this with them, but when I was in seminary in 2012, my spiritual formation professor encouraged each of us students, who are all prospective ministers in the class, to discover our personal mission statement. It may seem strange that an organism would have a mission statement. Uh, usually we think about those things as being organizations, right? But my professor convinced me of what a powerful thing it might be to take a fine-toothed comb to my life, my past, my present, my future, in prayer, in, in prayer and to discover what God's unique purpose is for my life and what my mission is in life. And I was convinced this is an awesome idea, and it was very, very helpful. When I was done with this extensive exercise, after a lot of prayer and even some fasting, I came up with this statement, which I treasure and reflect upon to this day. It says, At this time in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe my mission is to encourage the personal and spiritual growth of all of those around me, especially those who are suffering. Now, this is still my mission statement after 11 years, so it certainly has deepened in meaning as I've walked it out. Though I am an organism, not an organization, this quirky idea of my professor has been very helpful, and I do live my life by this statement. 
and I feel free to change it as I get more revelation from God. That's why I say at this point in my life of Christ before I say the statement. So where do the arrows of the enemy and the wounding come in for me? Well, for some uncanny reason, the central arrow of the enemy in my life has been no one can really understand you. Not really. From the time of my childhood, as long as I can remember, and lar largely because I was already internalizing this awful message, I believed that I could not really be understood. Not really. And so I began to build walls in order to protect me from this devastating message and pain. To not be understood is one of the deepest pains someone could have in life. It's, it's the opposite of whatever intimacy is, right? That, this is also the opposite of God's message over my life. Psalm 139 says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You have divided my thoughts and intentions. You know everything about me, my rising up, my laying down. I can't, you, nothing in my life this is really the opposite of that message. No one can really understand you, not really. Now, when your mission statement is to encourage the personal and spiritual growth of all of those around you, especially those who are suffering, but your wound is you will never be understood and no one will care to take the time to understand you. Once that wound is internalized and believed, the walls get built up. The enemy can take a much-deserved siesta, a little vacation, as I continue to reinforce this message of the arrows. And my life becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy based on my subconscious behaviors, such as resisting being known by others to protect myself and building walls. When this happens, in my case, um, with my example, you can do your own parallel learning about your own life. When this happens, you know what you need. You need a compassionate, persistent, maybe a little pushy friend. And I have one. I'm a pastor, so you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say Jesus, right? And that is actually true. But I'm also going to say it's not that simple. It's not as simple as we think because God's intention is to set the lonely in a family. Psalm 68 6. God sets the lonely in families. It is not God's will that we cop out of knowing others and being known by others, saying, well, at least Jesus knows me, and he is my friend. Instead, God will not rest in his mysterious inner work in our lives till our walls come down with others. Because God intends to set the lonely in a family. The principle is found again and again in Scripture perhaps most clearly in the book of 1 John. And once you see this principle in Scripture, you can't really unsee it. It's just everywhere. 1 John 4.20 Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The principle in this Scripture and countless others is that our relationship with God is inextricably linked to what our relationships with others in his body look like, the quality of those relationships. You will only experience the deep and beneficial friendship with Jesus, the compassionate friend, as you allow yourself to be known by the physical people God has placed in your life, in his body. I know we use phrases like, is all I need as we worship and pray, and even say those words uh, regularly or sing those words. And I know what those words mean. And those words are well-intentioned. 
Let me say that. So if you were to ask, he literally is all that you need, Jesus would come back to you and say, if you truly love me and desire my friendship, you must be a part of my body on earth. I have not created you to need only me. To clear up the confusion in all this, Jesus is all that we need for salvation. That is so true. Jesus is all we need for salvation. The sacrifice of Christ is our place on the cross. It's all we need. And that's what we mean when we say those words. But you need more than Jesus for your life. That's going to be my soundbite, isn't it? Put that on the website. You need people. You need not just the Spirit of God, but the body of Christ. It's called the body of Christ, an organism. When Adam was created in the garden before sin entered the world, God noticed that it was not good for man to be alone. Before sin. So God made a partner suitable for him. A friend. An intimate friend. Remember Psalm 68. God sets the lonely in their family. Once you see this pattern in Scripture, you cannot unsee it. It winds its way back to the communion table, where Jesus says to us that we ought to examine ourselves to ensure that our relationships within the body of Christ are in good order before coming to the table of communion. Or in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, where it says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. The level of benefit that we receive from our friendship with Jesus will be correlated to the depth of our earthly relationships to his body on earth. In other words, the flesh and blood members of Christ's body that are around you, even this morning. How about James 5.16? Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Who does the healing? God. But what precedes that is this intimate, confessional lifestyle with his body, the church. It could have said, confess your sins to God. But instead it says, confess your sins to one another. And when you do this, you experience the benefit of a deepened friendship of Jesus Christ, a compassionate one. God has created, created us to live with one another in harmonious and deep friendship. And through these friendships in his body, our connection and friendship to Christ, the compassionate one, is deepened. One will follow the other most every time. I have come to know Jesus as a compassionate friend. But this only happened because I did some spiritual warfare. Now, in other words, I opened myself up to the body of Christ on earth, my brothers and sisters in the faith, the ones Jesus says I cannot live without. And when I did, the floodgates of Jesus' friendship with me were opened. In the eyes of my friends in the body of Christ, I saw the eyes of Christ. From the first time I felt God's presence at salvation to that day, I had never known such a tender and compassionate friend as Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you the story. I've shared this before. Many years ago, I, I hit rock bottom in my life. It felt like a rock bottom to me. And I called my friend, who's a Christian, to come over to help me. I was alone at my house. I was too broken to be scared and to hold up the walls that prevented being known. I was desperate. I had sinned. He came and heard my humble, sincere, and ugly truth confession of my sins, which I quickly rattled off to him while looking down. 
And when I looked up into his eyes, they were red and stained with tears. He was grieving with me and for my pain and my shame. He was not judging me. He began to tenderly read scripture truth over my life. That was a, a moment when I became a friend with Jesus. Mysteriously. I had never known such a tender and compassionate friend as Jesus Christ in that moment. And it was in the face of a flesh and blood friend who heard me confess my ugly sins and assured me of God's unfailing love and forgiveness in my life. Years later, I read a book about the idea of doing a whole life confession. For anyone here is familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, um, this is something they encourage people to do in AA. And the idea is to take a trusted brother or sister in Christ and walk them through your entire life from the time you were born to the present day. To confess all the sin, to confess the heartbreak and pain, to confess any abuse that you had suffered but kept inside, or even ways that you had abused others. To confess the brokenness of your family of origin, to confess everything, everything from the beginning to the present day. And your confession partner is supposed to do the same thing with you. And thus, you're kind of tied together in this, in this confidence and this uh, relationship. Now, this person must be chosen carefully, as you may imagine. And you must have the overall sense that they are a mature believer and a humble person who's in touch with their own brokenness. I chose my friend who I got coffee with each week. And we had a retreat at his house together while his wife was out of town. So in front of a roaring fire, I shared a notebook full of pain, sin, shame, sadness that I had prepared in advance in writing. And he did the exact same thing with me. We were, we were each in this humble and broken place with the walls down as we listened to one another for almost eight hours. Tears and laughing, as you may imagine. And after it was all out there, we prayed and went to God. And then we burned our notebooks in the fire. And shame dissipated with the smoke as it rose out of the chimney. And this, did I feel closer to my friend? Absolutely. But what really happened was, I experienced the tender and compassionate friendship of Jesus Christ. For real. This is how God's created us to function. Finally, the ultimate move of God in my heart in this area of friendship with, with Jesus, uh, a compassionate friend, uh, has to do with my greatest gift, my wife, Jackie. For whatever reason, the safety of a marriage relationship encourages the, the, the marriage partner to work through their issues and their central wounds, or to be destroyed by them. Something about the security of marriage I've seen encourages us to let it all hang out, good, bad, and ugly. Hopefully after a while we get to see who the person we married is, and they get to see who we are. My wound, that no one can really understand you, not really, and no one cares to get to know you, really, didn't just apply to friends, but ultimately to my wife. Without even barely testing it out, I assumed that I could never really be understood by Jackie, not really. And as a result, I didn't try very hard to make myself known in my deepest heart and my brokenness with her. See, that's now that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? A trusted counselor encouraged me in my life, saying, you know, I think your wife could more than handle you sharing this with her. 
You need to utilize your marriage as your most important relationship. He encouraged me. Put the walls down and just try this out. So, wounded me, decided to put those walls down and actually share the real, real reality of my inner thoughts and the deepest things in my life with my wife. Just a little bit. You know what? She could handle it. My wife is a believer in Jesus. First in touch with her own brokenness. Humble, kind, compassionate. She could more than handle it. Not only could she handle it, she was able to speak into my life and still is able to speak into my life in incredibly wise ways because she knows me many times so much better than I know myself. And as my walls go down with her, as safety is understood and established, my friendship with Jesus, a compassionate one, continues to deepen. As I seek Jesus' face in the eyes of my dearest friends, my dearest friend, my wife, it occurs to me in all this how destructive it can be to say, beyond the topic of salvation, that Jesus is all that we need. Yes, Jesus is all you need for salvation. But deep friendship with Jesus is fostered and realized through walls down, honest relationships we have on earth with fellow members in the body of Christ. You develop your friendship with Jesus through your friendships in his body, the church. As a parent of four young kids, all under 11, it gets hard to have those types of friendships that lead to deeper friendship with Jesus. Very hard. Uh, they, they said that the big miracle of Jesus' life is that at 33, he had 12 friends. My bar for friendship has gone from one extreme to be owned fully to the other extreme, which is my best friends are those I spend the most time with. They just are. My weekly coffee friend, who I did a life confession with. My daily child and household management friend, Jackie, who I do life with. And now for us, our friends in our small group at church and other people that we trust and know. Week after week, my friendship with Jesus is nurtured by a small group of people I have allowed myself to experiment being open with in an attempt to share myself with walls down. I've had good experiences with small groups, making lifelong friends with Jesus' body at church. And many of those people were even found by my soul to be those friends who can listen to me, have compassion, and speak light and truth into my life, to know me and be known by me. Whether you begin to develop your friendship with Jesus through opening up to your spouse just a little bit more, or finding a trusted, mature, and gracious friend to confess your deep stuff to, as you move towards relationship with the body of Christ on earth, you will begin to find a compassionate and loving friend in heaven. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor by being a good, gracious, humble, listening friend. And you will show them Jesus' friendship. Take the first step. Share a little deeper with someone in the body of Christ who you think can handle it. Young people in the church, us older people now, like we, we've been through a lot. We were, all, we were young at one point ourselves and went through all the stuff you're going through. There's nothing new under the sun. You can talk to some adults in this church about things. You don't have to live 
with your walls up. Take the first step. Share a little deeper with someone in the body of Christ who can handle it. If you want to come to a place where we say, Jesus is my compassionate, intimate, and yes, sometimes pushy friend, we must go deeper with his body on earth. God's friendship with us has familiar hands and feet, ears, heart, and mind, and a lot of soul. In other words, God places the lowly in a family, the lonely in a family. And there's a friend who sits closer than a brother. Let me share with you. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Heaven is summed up in scripture in one way, where it says in Corinthians, now we know in part, then we will know in full. Now we see as in a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. Then we shall be known even as we fully know. My prayer for you is that on this side of eternity, you would begin to be known and fully known in the body of Christ. So I bless you to find a friend in Jesus, the lover of your soul, friend of sinners, friend of you and me. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You are dispersed to go and be the church.